in case you want to know, that's my granddaughter making all that noise. And with our little congregation, we haven't had a baby in a, probably a long time. It might have been the first. But anyway, sounds like her grandpa. Just a lot of noise. Anyway. Hey, the story we have before us here in chapter 1 is, is what Paul refers to in Galatians 4.4 4 when he says this, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That's a quote out of Paul's letter to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And so Paul describes what we read here in Matthew chapter 1, what we just read, as an event that came in the fullness of time. And the word fullness of time simply means this, God's sovereign will, his sovereign work. In God's sovereign timing, Christ came to this world. At the perfect moment, at the very moment God had planned, God sent forth his son. He worked through each and every generation leading up to this point. God's sovereignly working, moving, and preparing for this very moment, this very day, this very hour in history. Now, the genealogies, both Matthew and Luke, show this. And I don't want to show you this just for a moment, starting up front. Luke, if you would go there, don't. Okay, I'm just going to say this. You can look at it later. Luke what he does is simply this. He starts with Mary, and he moves backwards through David and Adam, showing the bloodline of Christ. What Matthew does in our text this morning is he starts with Abraham, and he works forward through David to Joseph to show the royal line. Why? Because it wasn't enough that a man be fully Jewish in the bloodline, but they also had the royal connection to be the king. That's why you have Luke and Matthew's account. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. One focusing on the bloodline of Christ, the other one the royal lineage of Christ. But I would say that to say this, there is another lesson involved here in the genealogies. It is this, that through each and every generation, God was sovereignly at work to bring about the birth of his son. Through all the generations that are listed, particularly in Matthew in our text this morning, verse 2 through 17, to the very generation that God had prepared, the very woman he had chosen, the very man he had chosen to be the stepfather of Christ, the very place he had declared Christ was born. Not a day late, not a day too soon. Not a generation before, not a generation after. But the very people, the very place, and the very timing was all under God's control. Because of that, Christ was born. Absolute sovereignty is displayed here. Absolute sovereignty. We often talk about the sovereignty of God in passing. But folks, this is the sovereignty of God on absolute awesome display. And not just in this moment, but from generation to generation to generation. It's not by fate. It's not by happenstance. It's not by coincidence that on this day Christ was born. This is the sovereign God orchestrating all the events through each generation to make sure that what Paul says in the fullness of time on that day when God saw fit the perfect day that his son 
would be sent forth through the Virgin Mary. That means the birth of Christ was never, ever in doubt. It was never contingent upon man's cooperation or even man's will, only on God's sovereign rule and reign in and through his creation, including people, which we will show in just a little bit. It's because of God Christ was born. Having said this, I want to do two things this morning. Number one, at first point, I want to step back and give kind of like a panoramic view of, of what's going on here throughout history. It will only take an hour or two, but we'll get there. Just kidding. This will be short and sweet. Then the second thing I want to do this morning is go immediately to our context in chapter 1, 2, and 3 and, and to get more of an up-close look at what's going on here. And look at the look at the particular players that are involved, Joseph and Mary, Herod, this evil, evil, ugly king of Judah at the time, and, and then even his son, and see how all this works together, how God and his sovereignty worked, not just on the panoramic view, but looked and worked through the particular people involved to bring about the birth of his son in the fullness of time. So first there's the big picture. And then we're going to look at more of the particulars. You want to look at the genealogy. It tells us that God was at work generations prior to Christ's birth. And there's, if you look at this, there's a lot of ancestral hiccups in, in this list. I mean, you've probably heard of this before, but for example, Tamar in verse 3. She's a prostitute. That's in Christ's lineage. You go two verses later, there's Rahab. Same thing. These are, these are hiccups. These are what one theologian calls knots in the family tree, so to speak. This is not stellar reporting here. And yes, it's, it's the lineage through which Christ came. Look at Ruth. She was a Moabite. Did you know that how the Moabite started as a group of people through an incestual relationship? And then there's Bathsheba in verse 6. Well, we all know about her and David. And not to mention David's mention here, too. He's not stellar at certain points of his life. Aren't you comforted with that right now? I certainly am. And then last but not least, you go to verse 11, and there's this last of the kings called Jeconiah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over again, and he's in Christ's lineage. As a matter of fact, you look him up in 2 Chronicles, Chronicles 36, 9, and, and over and over again, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's through all these people that God kept his promise of a seed, that there would be a redeemer, that he would send his son, and he's working generation by generation by generation, person by person by person. So when you talk about the sovereignty of God, it just didn't happen on the day of his birth. It had been going on. God had been working and preparing every year. But we can go back even further, beloved. God, I mean, that's not even all of God there is. Let's go back further to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here in the midst of the fall, in chapter 3, the entrance of sin took place through Adam and Eve. And in chapter 3, we see the judgment of God, the consequences of sin. And it's in delivering those consequences that God gives this glimmer of promise called a seed. The one who would, in the future, give the death blow to Satan. 
in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. This would later be revealed in Scripture to be the Christ. But that's not even all of God there is when it comes to his sovereignty. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wait a minute. Let's try to wrap our minds around this for a minute. Something happened before Genesis 1 and 2. We see the genealogies in Luke and Matthew. We see that in right after creation that that, that God promised to see the Messiah in chapter 3, verse 15. In the midst of all that judgment is this promise of the seed who would we'd become known as Christ, Jesus himself, the Messiah. But we can even back up and see God's sovereign plan being developed before he even created anything in Genesis 1 and 2. Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, uh, 1, just as he chose us in him for the foundation... Verses 4 and 5 tell us what God did. What did he do? He, he chose. Don't be scared of that. Don't be scared that God chose. If God did not choose, there would be no first coming of Christ. There would only be a second coming in judgment. There would be no salvation. I don't care how you slice it. God chose us before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean you don't actively activate and you, you don't actively exercise faith. You do that. But what it means is you do it because God, before the foundation of the world, had you in mind. Listen to this. So when we celebrate the birth of Christ, when we look at what's happening in Matthew chapter 1, when we read the Christmas story, all that is taking place because before Genesis 1 and 2, God had you in mind. All those that are in Christ, God had in mind when he sent his son. That's why it's not chance. It's not happenstance. It's not coincidence. Here, here, beloved, I want you to walk out this morning with a bigger God than you walked in here with. That is the purpose of preaching and teaching of God's word, right? So what did he do? He chose you. Verse 4, when? Before the foundation of the world. What's his motive? In love he predestined you. That was his motivation behind all this. Because he loved us. Because of his love for you. He sovereignly worked all these things through each generation of history to send forth his son to save you. That ought to drop us on our knees in prayer. That's why to be saved produces humility and not an arrogance. A humility and not a pride. Because it brings you to your knees knowing and thinking how God worked through history having you and I in mind to place us in his son. And, and it wasn't left up for grabs, so to speak. God is not up there in the heavens wringing his hands going, oh, I hope that somebody somewhere along the line is going to trust in me. No. God sent forth his son to accomplish redemption for those he had chosen. And the text says, before the foundation of the world. Wow. How loved are you? How loved are we? Now, having said all that, that was the panoramic view. 
Let's look a little closer at our passage this morning. Let's look at the more immediate work of God's sovereignty surrounding our Savior's birth, namely Mary Joseph, this, this Herod the madman, I call him. He was nuts. And then we're going to look shortly at his son who followed after him. Let's look first at Mary and Joseph, which is basically verses 18 through 25 that we read earlier this morning in chapter 1. Two kids. Really, they were. Today, we would call them kids. You're your kids who got married, right? They were young, younger than today, typically. They were teenagers in love with each other, deeply in love with each other, so much was Joseph in love with Mary that he respected her and didn't want her reputation to get skewed and he didn't want her to get disgraced, so he wanted to take her away secretly, but the angel said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what's going on here. She's not conceiving because of a man's seed, but because of the Holy Spirit. This is divine. This is a sovereign work of God impregnating a woman. Okay? Simple. Simple. Because he's fully God and fully man. Think about it, though. They're engaged. They're betrothed already, right? This didn't happen before they got engaged. They're already engaged. And so they probably already had their wedding plans going on. They might have had a date set. Most likely they did. Or so, well, we'll get, but this month we'll get to, you know, we're going to get all the wine together. We're going to, we're doing all the plans. And you all had any, any involvement in getting weddings ready. You know what all that's about. And they had big shindigs back then that Jews did when it came to weddings. I mean, it was very involved, and actually the celebration lasted for a couple days. Wow, imagine that one. But in the midst of all that, an angel tells her, tells Mary, according to Luke, that she was pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. Here in Matthew, an angel goes to Joseph and says, don't put her away. Stay engaged to her because she's not impregnated by another man, but by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is sovereignly at work. God sovereignly, here it is, interrupted their marriage plans. He interrupted their engagement. What is more important than a wedding? To, to the bride and groom, what's more? Nothing except your salvation. Oh, you see, that's what God had in mind through all this. What's more important than a wedding? What's more important than being in love? It's the redemption of those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. So all this happened with you and mine. Look at verse 22. Now all this took place to what fulfilled, there's that word again, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, verse 23, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Yes, he was with his creation when he was born, but even more so, he came to redeem, to seek and save those who were lost, to redeem people, and particularly those who he had chosen before the foundation of the world. Let's go to Herod the madman. Herod the madman in chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. The birth had already taken place, in other words. Okay, The major scene's over. All right, the manger seems over. We're, we're beyond that now. And you got these magi, these men of wisdom. They were like advisors to kings. They served as scientists, mathematicians, uh, philosophers, astrologers. That's why when they saw the star, they knew something was going on. And they were, they were also legal authority of their day to other kings out in the east. So when they came arriving to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, that area, they had a, 
a bunch of people with them. There's a word for that. I can't think of it in my head. Entourage. Thank you very much. An entourage, right? And so it was pomp and circumstance. So Herod obviously is going to take note. But when Herod heard of this, the first thing he did was question the religious leaders of the Jews first. And so he does that. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, they're asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, they were astrologers, well, with anybody, other things, in the east. Where are they at? They've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Herod heard this. He's going, who are these wise men? These are really smart guys. They're advisors to other kings out in the east. And here they are in my home turf. Okay? They're, they're here. I'm king of this area. What are they doing here? And they're looking for this guy who they themselves are calling what? King of the Jews. Verse 2. They're the ones that said this. Where is the king of the Jews? The Magi are saying this. So he's going, uh-oh. Fear's creeping in. He's getting scared. What's going on here? So what he does in verse 4 is he gathers together the chief priests and scribes of, his, of the people, the Jews, and inquired of them, where is the Messiah to be born? What they do in verse 5 is they quote scripture. They understood the Old Testament. For this is what has been written by the prophet, verse 6, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then what did he do? Next step. After he heard from his own leaders, he gathered the Magi together, verse 7. Then Herod secretly did it secretly. He didn't want the Jews to know he was also investigating the Magi and looking for their counsel that wouldn't look good in front of his constituents called the Jews, right? But in verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, hey, why don't you go search? i got to find out where this guy is, this babe you call a king the king of the Jews, and, and when you're done, why don't you come back and tell me where he is? Already you can kind of see the scheming that's going on here, okay? You see the scheming that is going on here. But what happens? The Magi don't go back to him. Because in verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back home to their own country. Now in verse 13, what happens here? Matthew reveals to us Herod's motive. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Here's why. For this reason, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Wow. Motive is revealed. Here's a couple things I want you to notice. Herod is obviously concerned. He is jealous. He is paranoid over this baby the Magi called King of the Jews. He's really, he don't want to lose his control. He doesn't want to lose his power. This is real life going on. This is Washington, D.C. And these guys are going to do whatever they can to hold their job down because they love what comes with it. They love the perks. Okay? Who wouldn't? Humanly speaking. So he's concerned. But even though this madman 
wanted Jesus destroyed, wanted him dead, it did not prevent God's will from being done because the will of the king is sovereign over the will of his subjects. And God is king of the universe. So even though he allows the will of men to go forth, he uses and orchestrates the will of man to accomplish his ends and his way and his will. Does that make sense? Proverbs says the will of a king is like channels in the hands of a sovereign God. He directs it any way he wishes. That's Proverbs 19.1. But we go on here. God, in spite of this madman, is full of jealousy and wickedness. I mean, he wanted to kill this baby. It's going to even get worse in just a minute. In spite of him, he, he, God's son would be born anyway in the time and the day that God wanted. Second, you know what else is going on? Herod is unwittingly falling in the hands of God's will. He's sovereignly being used by God. Unwittingly, unknowingly. It's called the invisible hand of God. Oftentimes, we know the result of it, but we never see his hand. Has there been a time in your life where he's protected you, and you wonder, how in the world did I did not get hurt worse? It's called the invisible hand of God, and it's a sovereign hand. Where you look back at an event, and you go, man, I should have died, or something bad should have happened, and how come it wasn't a lot worse? The only explanation is God's hand was involved in my life. So here, Herod unwittingly was used by God. God sovereignly used Herod's wickedness as a means of sending Mary, Joseph, and Jesus to Egypt. Look at verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. Why? Next sentence. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Wow. But we're not done. Look at verses 16 through 18. God permits sin to become utterly sinful. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, all the male children according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Man, that's ugly. He's a madman. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But you might ask, as I have God, why, if you are sovereign, why did you allow this to happen, the innocent one- and two-year-olds? All these men, they didn't do anything wrong. God, why? Here's a couple biblical explanations for this. Number one. God did not put this into Herod's heart. This is Herod's own wickedness going on here. Okay? It's his own wickedness. God tempts no one to sin. This is sin nature at a heinous point in time. And in a really wicked heart. This is what we call the sinfulness of sin. Utterly sinful. To the point he was so ambitious... So paranoid, so controlling, so did not, was afraid of men. Fear is driving this. that he killed these babies. It just shows the heinousness of sin. But God allowed him to carry it through. God, 
before Herod was born, foresaw that Herod would be so ugly in this, and God said, by my permissive will, I'll let it happen. Why? Because God says, I've got a bigger plan. I've got a plan. It's called redemption. But hold on. Second of all, we must understand and approach Scripture from its approach to us, an eternal point of view. We always look at saying things so temporally. We as Christians are taught in Scripture to take a step or two back and look at God's eternal plan, not just what's going on on earth, but how it involves God's eternal plan also in heaven. In other words, souls last forever. These bodies don't. There is life after death. There is a heaven and there is a hell, right? That's what I'm talking about here. But here's number three. Don't assume for a minute or automatically that all these babies and children went to hell. And here's why. Second Samuel twelve twenty three is a good indicator that they do not, that they go to heaven. Let me read this to you. You're familiar with this story. Nathan rebukes David. Okay, over a sin with Bathsheba and having her husband accessory to her husband's murder. Okay, and he reveals it to him, and David repents. But then we'll pick up, and I'll pick up in verse thirteen of chapter twelve of Second Samuel. Then David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord has also taken away your sin. You're forgiven. You shall not die." We all take a right. However, verse 14 says, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Wow. So then Nathan went to his house. But Nathan prophesied, saying that your child's going to die. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. And so God struck with the flu or something. But in seven days, the child dies and David's in mourning. But at the very end, in verse 22, is where I want to take you. Listen to these words. But now he has died. This is David speaking. Now my child has died. Why should I fast? Why should I keep on fasting? Can I bring him back again? In other words, can I bring my baby back again? No. I will go to him. Where does David go when he dies? Hello? Come on. Shout out heaven. Right. He won't come to me. I'll go to him. We know that because of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 32. He's listed in the hall of fame of faith, David is. So we know when he dies, he goes to heaven. He says, I will go to him. But he will not return to me question could it be true that all babies fall under the category of ephesians 1 4 that before the foundation of the world god chose them to be in christ could god not be so gracious and so loving that he would spare little children allow them to die so they wouldn't be able to experience the pain and the agony of living life on a sinful planet and just bring them home to be with him. What could be more gracious? What could be more merciful? Yes, we feel the pain of that loss. But precious in the sight of God is the death of one of his saints. 
that he, the father himself, would apply the blood of his son to cover that little sin nature that they have. Right? That, that he would clothe those little babies with the righteousness of Christ. That God would so graciously spare them the agony of living life on a sinful planet and going through those daily battles of dealing with the sin nature that you and I go through with every day. As Christians, we go through it, right? It's called spiritual warfare. They're spared all of that. Wow. But whatever the case, and I believe that is the case, and I think that's great evidence for that. Whatever the case, God is sovereign. God is just and righteous in all of his ways. He is loving and true, and he is holy. And therein faith rests our faith. Excuse me. Your faith rests. True saving faith rests in the character of God. Displayed on the cross. Displayed in the manger. Displayed in the virgin birth. Your faith rests in a sovereign God who's in control of all things. Because the moment he's not, then you could never, ever be assured of your salvation. Because it rests in his hands. Finally, there's Herod's son, Archelaus, verses 19 through 23. Herod's now dead. Joseph and Mary and Jesus are still in Egypt. An angel appears to Joseph. Say, goes to the land of Israel. He goes. He even gets to the region. Now, when he gets there, he notices that Herod's son is now ruling. And his son is going to remember what was going on, right, earlier on through Herod. And so Joseph was kind of afraid to dwell there, to stay there in the region of Bethlehem and Galilee. So then he had a God gave him a dream and said, okay, I want you to what? I want you to go somewhere. I want you to go to Nazareth. We look back at our text in verse 23. And it came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Why? This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. God in control every single step of the way. Every single step. See, this was God's way of, again, over and over again, fulfilling his word. Again, the sovereignty of God at work. Stop right there. I'm, I'm done with this. Because you might say, what does that have to do with, yeah, that has something to do with, I should say, it has something to do with Christ's birth, but what about me? It has everything to do with you. The sovereignty of God in Christ's birth has everything to do with those who are in Christ. It has everything to do with why you are here this morning. It has everything to do with why you're saved, why you trust Christ. The same Father who sovereignly orchestrated these events, sovereignly used all these people over these generations for thousands of years, who sovereignly used Mary and Joseph and Herod and his son, who sovereignly used the Magi, is the same Father who's involved in your salvation. He's not only sovereign, He's not only sovereignly worked out the birth of Christ, but he did it with you in mind. So here's some application for you this morning as we go. 
In closing, God's sovereignty shows us the degree to which God went to secure your salvation. Think about it. Think about it. God's sovereignty shows the degree to which God went to secure your salvation. Every generation, God, the patience, the long-suffering of God for that fullness of time, to wait that whole time, all that history, all that aggravation, we as humans might call it. At that moment, he would send forth his son. And he just didn't send his son without anything in mind or anyone in mind but you. Those he would place in his son, those who would trust Christ. He did it for you. You. At this point, if you are not personally applying this to your life, you've got to question yourself. Do you understand the enormity of God's salvation and the depth of his love, which is point number two? God's sovereignty shows the height, the depth, and the breadth of his love for you. God went through everything to save your soul. God's sovereignty was at work throughout history to secure your salvation in Christ. Here's another one. It is the bedrock, that is God's sovereignty, is the bedrock of how all things work together for good. It is the bedrock of Romans 8.28. For those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, God is sovereignly at work in the circumstances of your life. Not just for the birth of Christ, but for all his children, God is is sovereignly protecting you. Today he is at work in your life, protecting and guiding and shaping you until the day he calls you home to be with him. God's not going to show you his hand as his physical hand. It's an invisible hand. But God is nonetheless working. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us so. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God tells us that God is sovereignly in control of all things, even the birth of Christ, even us and our salvation in 2018. And that today and tomorrow, even at your death, when you die, when you get in a car accident or you get a disease, God's in perfect sovereign control. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What does that mean? It means I'm going to live kind of abandonedly for Christ, okay, while I'm alive. But even when it comes to dying, that is okay. Because it just means I'm going to be with him now. And I'm going to see him face to face. In other words, for Christians, we are in a win-win scenario. If I get up the next morning, it's a win. I live for Christ. If I don't get up tomorrow morning, it's a win because I'm going to be with Christ. Amen? May you walk out this morning with a greater God than you came here with. Realize God's sovereign hand throughout all of history, bringing forth his son. And put your name here because Jim or Dan, put your name there, was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, thank you for this morning. God, that's why we're here. It's, it's, it's not about feeling good. It's about having a great God. It's about searching the scriptures because you reveal yourself 
In all your actions, you reveal a part of yourself or many parts of yourself. And this morning, the incarnation, the birth of Christ, reveals your sovereign hand. But it wasn't just an empty display. It brought forth Christ. And you did it because before the foundation of the world, you chose us to be in him. He said, hey, you had me in mind. You had these folks in mind. You had all those in mind who have placed their trust in Christ. And right now, dear God, and if anyone has not repented of their sinfulness and placed their trust in Christ, I pray today would be the day that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to see that their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, Lord God, please, prick, move, stir our hearts, comfort the believer. And, Lord God, for those who don't believe, open up their eyes to see. Give them a taste of Christ, and I pray that they would run headlong towards him and embrace him as their Lord and Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.